Hi, welcome to back to Excited, episode 35. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always is my colleague from PenchmanandPuppets.com, Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. Episode 35, we are on the Curtis McElhaney episode of Back to Excited. We will flop around madly while still being somewhat effective today. Yeah, I think that that's actually a good goal for us as a general thing. It's uh, aiming high. Mm-hmm. How have you been, Fuleman? Uh, you know what? I've been worse as the Leafs have adversely affected my mood with their failure to continue winning all of the games that they play. It's, ha- so. it's very inconsiderate of them to do that. I know. I was enjoying the thing where we just kept winning, but now that we've stopped doing that, I'm not enjoying it at all. So Yeah, I, I, we should send a strongly worded letter to Brendan Shanahan. Uh, <laughs> suggesting have, you considered... that, have you considered winning more games, guys? Like, come on, yeah. why do I have to think of everything here? Yeah, Jesus. Um, yeah, so the Leafs have not been doing too well in their last couple games. I think the game against Pittsburgh uh, was actually not not bad. It's just they got kind of stoned by a hot goalie, which happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but against St. Louis, they, they really laid an egg, right? And it was... They laid an egg in an interesting way um, in that their offense just did not show up at all. They couldn't get anything going at even strength. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most boring games I've ever watched, especially, you know, we're used to being... Excite, uh, we're used to being given lots of chances both ways. And yeah. what we got was like a typical Minnesota Wild game instead. Yeah, that was excruciatingly dull. Dull and frustrating, kind of the worst of both worlds yeah. in terms of how that it, game worked out. When you're winning, you can like claim, oh, you know, you're not a real hockey fan unless you appreciate the, the finer points of the back pressure of this third line center. Um, yeah, which is, by the way... No, that's nonsense. Goals are excitement. Yeah. And uh, everyone who gets all pious about, like, you can appreciate a goalie duel when it ends one nothing. Yeah, but most of those games are dull. So goals yeah. are better than not goals. Goals that my team scores are better than goals that the other team scores. And unfortunately, we were deficient in both respects last night. Yeah. Like, people always say that, oh, you know, 2-1 games can be exciting. Like, yeah, they can be, but 5-4 games are generally more exciting. Yeah. Like, let's go with the average case here. Exactly. Um, but yeah, anyways, yeah, the Leafs really had nothing going on offense at all. It was super, super annoying to watch. And um, as is often the case in Leafland, this has created a lot of, I guess, debate about this team and whether Babcock is doing his job and yada, yada, yada. So I guess, mm-hmm. wh- where do you stand on, on this movement? How do you think Mike Babcock has done to start the year? Do you think he's culpable for the poor results a poor result that we saw yesterday, and I guess more broadly, abstracting this beyond one result, um, what do you like about what he's done what he's not done, and how do you think the Leafs stand at this point of the season? The trick with this is always separating what are the personnel doing and what are they being told to do, and how much of this is the coach successfully tailoring a game plan to the guys that he has, which he's got to do to some extent. And how much of this is he's got a good plan, but he's not get, being given the resources to execute it. I think most people would agree that the Leafs as a team at least have a lot of offensive talent, and they should score, and they generally have been scoring. Um, I generally think Babcock has been doing a good job. However, if the Leafs stagnate this year and they don't make a lot of progress, I don't think he's going to get fired. But I think that there's going to be some disconcerting chatter. And if he were to follow it up with another disappointing year, I think he would get fired. Um, So we haven't really ever discussed the possibility that Mike Babcock is on the hot seat. And I don't think he is yet or will be for a while yet. But you do want to see progress. And now this is the toughest step to take is to go from good to great. 
So in terms of what has Mike Babcock been doing, well, he's generally built teams with the Leafs the last couple of years that outscored their problems. And it works well enough. Uh, the team does better in expected goals usually than it does in Corsi and has been a slightly above water Corsi team, but not by much. Right now, they're just above 50% if you adjust it. And I think a lot of people want more than that. I think a lot of people want us to outshoot teams, to outchance teams consistently, and they think it's time for us to really start being an elite team. Last night, they didn't look like an elite team at all. And St. Louis has done that to us in the past. I think they're a bad match for us. I remember vividly having to recap a game against the Blues last season where it was so dull and depressing that I just started quoting like T.S. Eliot poems in the third period of the recap, just being like, I will show you fear and a handful of dust and just depressing shit like that uh, because the game was not watchable. And St. Louis does that. They trap you. Um, they make it really hard to generate much speed through the neutral zone. Kind of paradoxically, this is one of those times where the stretch pass, which has been so much maligned as a feeling of Mike Babcock, sometimes pays out. Because sometimes it's a way to cut through the maze of bodies in the neutral zone. And the Leafs did that a couple of times and got some breaks. They just didn't get goals out of them. But what I really noticed against St. Louis was that there would be battles along the boards and in the corners. And St. Louis would often win them. And then they would toss the puck out into the slot, into the high danger areas. And often they would score. Uh, the Leafs, as is their habit, if they won a battle in the offensive zone, would go back to the point and then try for a high tip. And again, that actually was sort of what happened, at least going from corner to the point, on the first Leaf goal. So that's something. It's not necessarily a bad idea in general. But it looked a lot last night like the Leafs were not an especially physically robust team in terms of battles, and that they lost a lot of them. Like the neutral zone, the game in transition was frustrating, but... Even beyond that, it looked like there was a lot of stuff going on in the boards where the Leafs were getting put under pressure. And then if they did come out with the puck, they were kind of doing a panic pass that might get intercepted by the other team. Uh, Travis Yost, who writes for TSN, had a statistic about how the Leafs had 19 giveaways uh, last night. Sorry, 21 giveaways last night compared to 9 for St. Louis. And 15 of Toronto's were in the defensive zone. Like, that sounds like a team that's kind of wilting under pressure if they're giving away the puck twice as many times as the opposition. So bringing that around to Mike Babcock, okay, does he, does he solve that? Does he bear responsibility for that? I don't know. I think he's doing a lot with what he has. I don't know that the Leafs have the toughest defense core in terms of making plays under pressure. And I'm starting to wonder if some of the to and fro and discontent about the stretch pass is as much that the Leafs' defense, when it gets pressured, starts panicking or starts making desperate passes or even just ices the puck. Nikita Zaitsev, unfortunately, does this a lot. And that that's really the issue as much as or more than the stretch pass is that it's not passes with a lot of time that are well thought out. Yeah, I think a lot of that makes sense. One thing I do want to state right off the bat is that the Leafs' offensive system, such as it is, broadly works. Um, the Leafs are, as of right now, sixth in the league, sorry, fifth in the league in expected goals for per 60 minutes at five on five. Um, so they, they are generating offense. Now, 
they are also like 26th in the league in expected goals against per 60. Uh, this is all by Evolving Hockey's expected goals model. So I think when people criticize the system, and again, we've said this before, but you can make legitimate criticisms of this um, of this system and what the tactics are that the Leafs employ. But you have to acknowledge that the, the Leafs offensively are a potent team in aggregate. Like what we saw last night notwithstanding, they generally get quite a few chances and they generally kind of blow up other teams pretty well. Mm-hmm. Regarding what happened last night, I, I broadly agree with you. I think the Leafs were, I don't want to say outworked, but they, they lost a lot of those, as you said, those board battles, and then that becomes a real issue. And then when they're in the defensive zone, the Leafs look so awful in the defensive zone. Like mm-hmm. When they get a 50% puck battle or like a 70% puck battle where like the puck's kind of on their stick but there's pressure it feels like they never actually leave it leave that situation with control of the puck right and this is this is all very heuristic and very eye testy and we could be totally off base here but that seems to me like a big issue and I don't really know how you necessarily devise a system to get around that fact I think broadly we might have to just accept the Leafs defense is not particularly skilled in that situation and that the Leafs also don't really help them. Uh, Leafs forwards don't really help them that much. Um, so it, it's tough. Like I, I always find it super hard to break this stuff down because you need you need a really high-level knowledge of what teams are trying to do and how they're trying to succeed and whether, as you said, the players are deviating from that or if, you know, the negative outcomes that are arising are from the situations that the players are being put in or from the players not being able to execute once they're put in those situations. Mm-hmm. And realistically, the answer is always a bit of both. Yeah. So I, this is my long-winded answer, long-winded way of saying, I don't really know how much of the Leafs kind of underwhelming even strength play is lies on, on Mike Babcock, right? It, we're the same as we were last year. We were very good offensively last year and very bad defensively this year. Well, that's exactly what we are this year. And it's not really, a, it shouldn't be a huge surprise given that, yes, we made a big offseason acquisition, but it was an offseason acquisition who leans into that profile, right? Where Tavares is yeah. dominant offensively and not amazing defensively. We didn't really address yeah. the defense at all. And this is not like a criticism of what we did this offseason. I think every Leafs fan would justifiably say, yeah, take that Tavares deal all day um, because you have another elite player and you can fix the rest more easily, at least we would think. But we haven't fixed it yet. And yeah, it's... I kind of struggle for things to say about the Leafs right now. They are who we thought they were, right? Not, Not much has changed. And I don't see any forthcoming reason to believe that things are going to change dramatically. I think... The arrival of William Nylander when he gets back eventually, and we'll get into Nylander specifically in a little bit, um, that will help things. That will juice us a little bit. There's an important knock-on effect there. But, mm-hmm. I mean, th- this team is what it is. Uh, you can criticize Babcock for not devising a system that leads to more, I guess, shot dominance, but I guess I, I need more specifics on what exactly that entails. Because people have mentioned like the breakouts and the stretch passes, and it's I gotta be honest, I, I don't really see it, at least not recently. I don't think we've been that reliant on the stretch pass outside, like, maybe the first few games. 
No, it was noticeable against Montreal that I thought. And since then, I really do not think that they've been over-reliant on it. I think that they've used it a little bit. But that being kind of a meme for what the problem with the Leafs is systemically is kind of played out. I think that people want an explanation for why is this team that I think is good not as good as I think that they ought to be. And it is hard to provide a systemic answer. I've been trying to apply my extremely amateur's eye test to the Leafs in the last couple of games. And so I'll tell you what it looks to me like I'm seeing. And again, I'm totally capable of being wrong. And the fact that I saw it in a couple of games doesn't mean that that's what's being coached or that that's what's desired or that that's what's going to keep happening. But uh, the things that I noticed are, one, the Leafs going back to the point a lot in the offensive zone. That kind of gets the puck out of danger. You know, it moves it back to your defensemen. The Leafs have some good offensive defensemen who can do a lot of work at the top of the zone. They can also come in a little bit to cut off the top of the zone, which is good. But also, there's a real emphasis on pinching from the defenseman that I've noticed, and it seems too aggressive, it seems too consistent not to be coached. Uh, I saw it from Morgan Riley a couple times last night where he made very aggressive plays at the line that went against him, and that resulted in odd man rushes against. And I've seen that happen, I saw Martin Marincin do it, and Martin Marincin is not usually who you associate with, like, extremely aggressive offensive plays. I've seen Ron Hainsey do it, of all people. I think that it is deliberate, and I think that that by itself is a high-risk strategy in terms of let's outscore our problems by we'd rather take a chance to try and hold the zone and keep the offensive pressure up than uh, be conservative and try and make sure that we always uh, avoid giving up odd man rushes. Again, I'm sure Mike Babcock would rather never surrender an odd man rush, but that looks like a choice. The other thing that I've noticed is that if you do start to buy that the Leafs are maybe not the best team in terms of battles, in terms of winning them along the boards, it does sort of make more sense the really heavy value that Mike Babcock has put on Zach Hyman and the like of him, which has been oft remarked upon and, you know, I've talked about it, but it this might be confirmation bias, but the more I look at it, the more I watch the Leafs go into the corners and stuff like that and not come out with the puck. Uh, and I watch the puck go past them into the slot or something like that. And I find myself thinking, I wish I we had players who that didn't happen to quite so often. It doesn't mean that I don't value Jake Gardner or Nikita Zaitsev, but when I see that they're getting blasted on the shot clock this year, which is what's happening, that's the kind of thing that I look at. Because in the offensive zone... I think those guys can be quite good, uh, especially Jake Gardner, most notably. But something is going wrong in the defensive zone with that pairing, and something's going wrong with the Matthews line. And so when I watch them get kind of ring around the rosied in their own zone for what feels like hours at a time, I have to think that there's just something from a personnel perspective. Like Babcock talked about Zaitsev's ability to stop the cycle. Well, I, he hasn't seemed to be doing it a lot to me, but I also can see why Babcock really wants someone to do that because otherwise the cycle goes around and around on the Leafs. And St. Louis is especially pronounced for that, but it, it looks like our Achilles heel. So when I try to figure out what Mike Babcock's system is, I don't know. 
Just the things that I'm seeing are he's got an offensively capable, not especially heavy team. And for all his talk about uh, hard work, about playing heavy, about how the game changes as you get farther in the season and into the playoffs, I think he has kind of coached to the personnel that he has. There's been a lot of smarmy kind of Twitter conversation about, you know, Mike Babcock is bad and basically holding this team back. I think Mike Babcock is doing his best to build a working system with some brilliant but flawed diamonds, is, is how I would put it. And again, that's not me saying we don't have a great team in personnel. We do. But they're imperfect in their ways. And I think we're seeing some of those imperfections. And when we lose, those imperfections kind of shine all the more brightly. Yeah. And there's some things I definitely would criticize Babcock for. Um, in particular, I think Freddie Gauthier is... I, I'm still really not sold on him. I don't think he's very good. Um, I think mm-hmm. giving Andreas Janssen a bit more of a shot than what he has had so far would be prudent. It's something that I would do. But in terms of lineup decisions, I don't have huge issues with Babcock because, you know, those are the depth guys and they matter, but those aren't the biggest problems on the Leafs right now, right? There are problems that Mm -hmm. could potentially be fixed and hopefully will be, but it's like Babcock is failing. If, If coaching is a test, Babcock is failing a part of his test that's worth like 5%. Yeah. And the thing is, is that about Freddie Goche, look, we've said we don't think he's an NHL player. I still don't think he's really an NHL player. One, he's looked better than I thought mm-hmm. he would. And two, that line uh, in both of its combinations with him centering it has been decently above water and shot attempts. And Freddie Goche has not been outscored while he's on the ice. For a fourth line center, that's honestly yeah. fine. Like you can you can say still I would rather have someone else and I would too, but the fact remains it's not a bleeding wound. So right, it, it, exactly that. It, it's it's not a gigantic problem right now. And I mean, a Gote led line is always going to undershoot its shot attempts, right, in terms of goals because Gote is a horrific shooter. Because <laughs> he has like the worst shot. Yeah, in his the world. shot is awful, and by NHL standards, mm-hmm. and they're they're not exactly shooting from prime locations the way like Austin Matthews does. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it's not, again, it, it's not, it's not the biggest problem in the world for the Leafs right now. The, the biggest problems for the Leafs right now are Austin Matthews' line just getting, being so porous defensively, uh, being really, truly bad defensively. Gardner Zaitsev getting murdered, basically irrespective of who they play against or with. And Nazem Kadri's line not being able to convert on shot dominance. And I think that's kind of the order of importance as well. The Austin Matthews thing, again, it's been masked because he, on a personal level, has been so hot Mm -hmm. like burning. And he's had points on the power play, and he's had all this. One, Austin Matthews, on a personal level, has been outscored at 5-on-5 this year. Um, Actually, is that still true? It was true a game or two ago. I doubt it's gotten any better. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) it's definitely last night. Uh, yeah, now the line with Marlowe and Kapanen on it has had more goals for than against, so that's progress. Right. But at the same time, this is our first line. This is supposed to be a dominant first line. And if that line is getting outshot, which it has been, and even in expected goals, it's just a little bit 
above yeah. water. You need more from your first line than just a little bit above water, unless you're okay with your team being just a little bit above average. Um, so it, it is a bit of a concern. And again, it's like, it seems crazy to say this because Matthews is still just under two points per game now. And he, he's clearly having a dynamite offensive season, but something isn't working there. And it's mitigating some of the benefit from his truly outstanding offensive work. And so it's like, how do you right. fix so, that? So let's get into that. So the interesting thing about Matthews' struggles at five-on-five five is that offensively, this season, uh, Matthews, both individually and his team when he's on the ice, is producing roughly the same amount of offense as he did last year. Right? His mm-hmm. individual expected goals for and his team expected goals for are very, very good and pretty much exactly the same as last year. The difference is, last year... Um, while not being good defensively, he wasn't completely totaled defensively. But this year, he has just been getting run through. Teams are destroying Matthews' line defensively. Yeah, and that's more than a little worrisome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I, I, I got some, some shit for this when I, when I said it before, um, that, hey, Matthews is not a very good defensive player. And I've harped on this probably now for like three podcasts in a row, but I do not understand how you can watch Austin Matthews and think he is a good defensive player mm-hmm. right now. He's good at some aspects of defense, yes. Is he a good defensive player? I, I don't see how. I don't see how you can argue that a player who is giving up like three expected goals per 60, which for, for reference, like that's way, way, way below average. That's, that, like, that's a really, really bad defensive uh, mm-hmm. output. I don't see how a player who is good defensively, consistently has results like that. And again, he was better last year, although not great, still below average. This year, it's been truly, truly terrible. Now, I don't know whether you want to lay that at the feet of Matthews specifically, um, but it's something that has been the case kind of regardless of who he's been playing with in terms of uh, defense as well. So it's something that has to do with his line, it seems. Yeah, and it's something that needs fixing. I don't want to pin everything on one player, and that would be unfair. It takes a village to be bad. <laughs> um, I don't know that Patrick Marlowe as the left wing on the first line is working. I just don't see... I mean, it's pretty clearly not working, yeah. right? I mean, th- that line hasn't been good. No, I, I don't and... see the contributions from him that I would have to see to be happy about it. And he's still quick. He's still capable. But if he's not getting offensive zone time or rush chances, I don't think Patrick Marlowe gives you much. I just don't think that he has a a lot left in the other parts of his menu at this point in his career, which means if the team needs someone who's going to transition them to offense or to provide kind of a digging presence the way Zach Hyman might do or something, he doesn't do that. And again, I'm going kind of full eye test on this episode because I'm trying to shed some light on the statistics that we have that are after all only nine games, but he looks invisible to me a lot of the time. And a lot of the offensive contributions that that line is making are still mostly, I mean, Matthews first and foremost, and then Casperi Kapanen is obviously contributing. I would, I would like move him in a heartbeat, except then I have to replace him. And the question becomes who mm-hmm. with? Well, William Nylander in my dreams, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, and then who else are the options? Like Andreas Janssen? Maybe at this point, but it's not like he stepped up and stole on a job. 
it, it really looks like we're missing something at first line left wing. The alternative thing is, you know, Austin Matthews is not that great defensively and maybe his lines will just look like this to some extent. And that's kind of worrisome. As of last year, you know, they were not good, but they were better than this. So you're hoping they can at least get back that far and we let Matthews' individual brilliance carry us the rest of the way. But this doesn't look like an elite NHL first line when Matthews isn't shooting like a billion percent. And that's worrisome. Right. Like last year, I think um, Matthews was pretty much at like 53% expected Mm -hmm. goals, which is, I mean, again, that's actually not amazing for a first line center. You want to be higher than that. Right, like you look at the the high water mark, of course, is McDavid, who is whatever line he's on, which just kind of blows the other team away, just because of how ridiculous offense gets when he's mm-hmm. on the ice. And and side note, that's the reason why Matthews isn't uh, in McDavid's world yet, um, because McDavid has an even more pronounced offensive impact than Matthews does, and Matthews' offensive impact is already pretty gross. Oh yeah, gross in mm-hmm. a good way. Um, but yeah, like. It's definitely it's definitely worrisome that this year Matthews is operating at pretty much like break even, maybe a tick above that in terms of expected goals. That that's that you just can't get away with that from your first line. That's not acceptable, and it's especially not acceptable when you're going to be paying the guy who leads that first line twelve million, eleven million, whatever, a, a crap ton of money. You, you need more than that out of it. Yeah. Right. And again, like I'm using Matthews here as a stand-in for Matthews's line. It does not fall entirely on him. And as Fulham said, Marlowe is quite obviously the first person you point the finger at on mm-hmm. that group. But yeah, like yeah, that line just has not worked, right? And it, a lot of it seems to be that they they can't stop anything right now. They, they're they're so so weak in their defensive zone. Yeah, and then you say, okay, why is that happening? How much of it is on them? How much of it is on the defense? Which I think is struggling. The, well, but that, yeah. that's the thing. Like with with the defense, they're they're equally bad with Gardner Zaitsev and with Riley Hainsey in different ways. They're much more high event with Riley Hainsey for whatever reason, but they're still below fifty percent in terms of shot attempts. Mm-hmm. With Gardner Zaitsev, the game slows down a lot, but they're still below fifty percent in shot attempts. And look, these are small samples, mm-hmm. but we're being descriptive here, not predictive. Um, the, it, it, I find it hard to blame the defense that much when both of our top pairs well both of our top four pairs are kind of really struggling with this line and in particular riley hainsey are doing fine with other lines yeah which makes you wonder okay what's going on here it's tempting to read in some stuff about competition here because there was a time when Mm -hmm. nazim kadri took the tough matchups and provided a nice warm soft blanket for Austin Matthews to be swaddled in and to enjoy offensive zone chances. I'm exaggerating, obviously, because competition only goes so far. But there was a clear move to let Kadri take the heat and to protect the other lines. That's not happening so much anymore. And the results for the Kadri line have been fascinating because now that line is almost ridiculous in shot attempts. But because Kadri's wingers don't have a lot of offensive talent, the result has been a line that gets all the shot attempts and doesn't score. But for the Matthews line, it looks like they're kind of wilting under the pressure. Gardner Zaitsev is being used as a 
top matchup pair, and it doesn't look like they're up to that. Uh, just the evidence there so far has been pretty negative. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're used to seeing good shot results from Jake. He hasn't had much going on. Uh, he hasn't looked as good as we're used to him looking. Uh, Nikita Zaitsev, I don't know what to say anymore. Uh, at times I've thought he was looking better. At times I've thought I was kidding myself thinking that he was looking better. And I'm leaning in the latter direction right now. <laughs> uh, and that's our best right defenseman, basically. You know, you do start to think, okay, is there a way out of this um, with a given lineup? Or do we just have to accept that will be some approximately better version of this because it's never as bad as it feels after a loss. And St. Louis is a mm-hmm. bad matchup for us, and I think that they're going to make us look worse than we are. But, you, you know, this is a team that aspires to contend. And the bottom line is, if your top pair and your top line are getting killed, and again, I, I think it's going to sound silly saying that the top line is getting killed, but it's not doing well. And... It's not doing well for, by the standards of what a top line should be, especially a top line on a contender. Exactly. Especially for a top line with Austin Matthews on it, who we agree is a phenomenally talented player, even if his defense isn't as good as angry people on Twitter want to yell at us that it is. Uh, and, you know, it is worrisome to me that kind of we can't seem to fix this. And my hope has been William Nylander is going to improve that. I think that William Nylander is... A good transition player. I think that just by definition, he upgrades the talent of the line. It's a question of how much uh, impact. I think maybe I expect more of an impact from him coming back than you do if he winds up on that line. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm. So maybe I'm being pessimistic here, but I think it's important to note that the offense isn't the trouble for the Matthews line. It's the defense. Right. Right. So maybe they get a boost from Nylander's offense. And I expect them to get better defensively just because it's hard for them to get worse yeah i mean you might expect a certain amount of regression to the mean in a positive way just because they're so bad right now (laughs) exactly um so maybe maybe that happens and they get and uh, you know if if they revert to last year then you're back to matthews being a 53 percent expected goals player and then okay that's not amazing but you can live with that uh i guess a couple things i wanted to know is before we talk about need because i think that's going to monopolize the rest of the yeah. podcast um the Tavares line has been better than the Matthews line throughout the season but they're also not destroying the world or anything like that yeah the Leafs look like a good team like a very offensively potent team but it's like the margins that they're putting up on competition aren't dominant the way that a really elite teams would be right and look it it's mm-hmm. early right now um the Leafs expected goal differential per game um or per 60 minutes by evolving hockey they're sandwiched between two other teams right now uh at like as teams that are a little bit above water but like not by a huge amount they're all kind of clustered in the middle of the Mm -hmm. league the two teams that they're sandwiched between are Tampa Bay and Boston yeah so I mean (laughs) unfortunately I have a feeling that might be how the standings work out but you know yeah and you know people expect those teams to be at the top of the league uh, and maybe they'll get there. It's early, things can change, yada, yada, yada. But, yeah, I mean, it's just... It's just been worrisome how the Leafs' top line has not really done a lot. And then the Gardner-Zaitsev pair, 
I, I think we can call it quits on that experiment. Yeah. Like, we don't need to say, oh, you know, maybe they'll turn it around. I think they are what they are. I, no, I think we have to start saying, okay, that has to end. Like, we have to yeah, say, like, break can't... up that pairing and do something else. And if mm-hmm. it's Gardner-Riley, so be it, honestly, at this point. Like, I'd like to think outside the box just because I don't want to watch a pairing that gets snowed under to, like, the tune of 57% of the shot attempts against or something like that. You know, I can live yeah. with them not being the best defensively because, you know, I'm a realist and I know who's on the pairing. But there's mediocre, there's bad, and then there's what's been happening to them lately. And as much as I hope that they might get better, I don't want to wait on that any longer. So in terms of things for Mike Babcock, I would suggest that maybe. It doesn't look like he's prepared to tinker with it right now. And I don't think yeah. Travis Dermott, who is the obvious candidate to move up, did himself a ton of favors last night. He was on for three goals against. He didn't look the greatest on a couple of them. Yeah. So, it, he, so there was a, a tweet going around today uh, that the, Dermot was kind of rotating out of the nominal third mm-hmm. pair at, at practice. The Leafs' next game is in four days, so it's hard to read into that. Um, we don't know if it's just, I don't know, rotation or if Babcock's just teaching him a lesson. Um, if he scratched Dermot, then that immediately kind of moves to the top of my shit list with Babcock. Dermot has been very good this year. Yeah. If he scratches Dermot, then that is a mistake. And he might be doing it for motivational reasons more than anything. But it is nonetheless a mistake, in my opinion. I mean, even just like rotating about like this in practice, I I could as easily see this being like, hey, wake up, kid. You know, you're not guaranteed anything. Quit screwing around. But like Mm -hmm. the third pairing has been almost comically good. In shot attempts, like as much as they've been bad before. And again, lots of third pairing defensemen put up nice enough shot results, but like we were used to the Roman Polak experience. Yeah, so. like, I mean, Dermot has shown us what a truly overqualified third pairing defenseman looks like, mm-hmm. where he, he's like destroying people in limited competition and like a, a smaller role. Yeah. It's very clear that he can be used more and. Babcock has already started to find him a bit more ice, yeah. right, in, in certain situations. Uh, so, yeah, long-term, I don't think that this is wor- anything to worry about regarding how Dermot is with respect to Babcock's doghouse. I, mm-hmm. I, I really don't think that's the case at all. But, yeah, it, it's just something needs to change regarding Gardner's ice. Riley Hainsey has somehow been good. I like here's the thing we say okay we have to change Gardner's I'd say how do we change it we don't have the horses Mm -hmm. right okay sure put Dermot up there maybe that works but it seems like Babcock wants to ease him along a little bit um who's left do you dust off Martin Marinson you know as much as we're both (laughs) big fans of his I think we agree that he is a good third pairing guy and not someone you really want in a top four especially playing on his right side so I mean, the the fact is the Leafs just don't have a lot of options there. And, and this is what we got into earlier on, on how it's it's hard to evaluate how much of their mediocrity in terms of carrying play at 5-on-5 five five is due to those lack of options versus due to some rigidity in Babcock's system that doesn't allow these players to do what they need to do in order to succeed. Yeah, that, that's basically the side like, of it. I, I, think, I think we really have no idea. We're not experts on that i think the vast vast majority of people pontificating on twitter are not experts on that and are 
frankly being disingenuous when they say, oh, the stretch pass. Like, the, the stretch passes are the butt her emails of Leafs hockey discussion. <laughs> yeah, well, they're a default and they're a shorthand for I'm pissed with this team getting stuck in its own zone or making giveaways. Yeah. And I, I get that. It's frustrating. I don't like that they make giveaways. But if you want to blame Mike Babcock for that, I think you need a bit of a more sophisticated answer. And I'm starting to see some of the complaints directed at him going really all over the place. Like, And again, it's always easy to complain about the coach rather than complain about the personnel because what's easier to fix? Uh, firing the coach, which again, I don't think is on the horizon anytime soon. But I, I saw, you know, some commentary about how Mike Babcock is in love with the neutral zone trap. What? Like, the Leafs don't play the neutral zone trap. I don't even, you know, I'm not a systems expert, but they don't do that at all. Um, and it's kind of like, it's just going into sometimes the Leafs look really good. And when they don't look really good, it's frustrating. And we want some sort of reason for why that is, rather than maybe they're not actually that good all the time. They're still baseline, a really talented team. I think that this, the tone of our first 40 minutes here have been maybe surprisingly morose for a team that has won twice as many games as it has lost yeah. this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we want to keep that in perspective. We want to be reasonable. It's just a matter of we're a team with serious pretensions to contending right now. Right. So like, And flaws have to be fixed. Right. We're like Being mediocre in carrying play is not really where you want to be as a team if you, if you're a, if you see yourself as a contender, and the Leafs clearly do. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, it, the sky isn't falling, right? The Leafs are not going to miss the playoffs. They're not going to... I mean, they could potentially miss the playoffs if a lot of bad things happen, but realistically, they are probably going to make the playoffs. They are probably going to be in a very competitive series with whoever they face where they will be like 50% or better to mm-hmm. make it to the second round. Uh, it's just... They are not uh, filling us with the confidence that they are, in fact, a an elite team. Yeah, we want this team to look like it's ready to go toe-to-toe with the Nashvilles and the Tampa Bays of the world. And when you go toe-to-toe against St. Louis, who I think are better than their record, but they're not a serious contender in my opinion, or at least they're not in the top shelf of contenders, it is frustrating to look as bad as we did on home ice, on full rest, with all the advantages that you ought to have. But it's one game. So, in the end, go back at it against the Jets, who are most definitely one of those teams that we want to show up against. I mean, and, and speaking uh, of teams that we've been talking about the Leafs, you know, not looking the way we would like them to, the Jets have not looked very good at even strength for most of the year. They are actually mm. um, the second worst team in the league according to evolving hockey in terms of expected goal differential at even strength yeah and that's like very surprising and i mean the only team worse than them is anaheim who are <laughs> who don't deserve to be an nhl team at this point um, anaheim is doing some like insane experiment where it's like i think honestly we have to acknowledge the possibility that john gibson in a previous life was like maybe genghis khan <laughs> or, or some someone like that, but like that he did, I guess, war crimes. And then he's been reincarnated as the goaltender for the Anaheim Ducks, and now he's being made to pay for his sins by playing behind a team that can't defend worth a good goddamn, 
and gets outshot 19 million to one every night. He has to take one puck for every life that he ended in his previous existence. And only then will his sins be redeemed. Yeah. That's my theory of the Anaheim Ducks at this point, And it makes about as much sense as any of Randy Carlyle's systems. So fuck it. Yeah. So uh, like it's early teams. The teams at the top of the league in terms of carrying play, shot attempts, expected goals are not always the teams we expect to be there at the end of the year. Like, um, I mean, actually, Carolina is a bad example because we do expect them to be there. Their, their, their role in life is to destroy teams and lose 4-2. Okay, you notice, like, they had the fancy stats, and they still, like, they look really, really good by fancy stats. Yeah. And they won a few games, and people were like, is it finally happening? And now they've lost three in a row, and it's like, is it finally happening again? Like, Yeah, yeah and all the games they've lost, like, they should have won. <laughs> like, I know. They, they were, like, by far the better team. Yeah, and just, oh, man. I honestly, like, it's time for Carolina to catch a break. Like, I do really feel bad for them because they've been so good in so many ways for so long and they have the longest active playoff drought but like jesus lord when they played the leafs i expect that to be like the leafs are going to get 25 or 30 percent of the shots they are going to dominate the leafs they are exactly the type of team we struggle to do anything against because they're really they're really really aggressive on the forecheck they don't Mm -hmm. give you a lot of space they don't give you a lot of time uh they have skill guys who can capitalize on mistakes they have good puck thieves we're not going to get much going but we're going to win 3-1 (laughs) <laughs> yeah i remember of all the the games that i recapped last season for the site the two teams that we looked the worst against in my experience were st louis in one game where we blew them where we got blown out and carolina in one game where we actually won because we had way better goaltending and the other team was playing cam ward <laughs> um so yeah carolina looks like they might play the tight, but you never know. Their stats are so good. It's like they look like not even just a playoff team, but maybe even a contending team right now. And yet yeah, you can't you can't bet on it. <laughs> and they're getting good quality shots too. They're not peppering yeah. teams from outside. Like they're getting really really nice shots. And you think they have some finishing talent now. Like Sveshnikov looks rather good. Uh, Aho is a full full born star. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to like about that team. Jordan Stahl is like always the answer to who is the most underrated player in the league. Until, like, three years from now where he'll be overrated because he's so underrated. That's how it works <laughs> with, like, good players in Carolina. Remember Louis Erickson? Who yeah. He was, like, the most underrated player for three years, and now he's, like, the most overpaid player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, sorry. so getting back to the Leafs, it's, again, it's not doom and gloom. The Leafs are pretty much what we thought they'd be, but it is worrisome that the Matthews line is really not going the way we'd like them to. It, there seems like there's mo, more hope there, at least, um, because we've seen them be successful before in similar iterations last year. And mm-hmm. it, it, they just need to get, like, if they become not horrific defensively, then they're fine. Yeah. The, the Gardner's Lights up pair just seems like something we're going to have to deal with because that's that's not working. And, um, yeah. So, anyways, regarding one of the potential fixes for that Matthews line, uh, William Nylander is the obvious answer. Yeah. And, you know, look... I'm trying my best to maintain sensible optimism about sort of this. I thought Nylander would be resolved by now. And the fact that it's not, yeah, that's a concern. Like, yeah. This is officially at a point where it's like, yes, the people who worried were correct to worry. And now I'm one of them. Uh, so Chris Johnson had a piece this morning and he said in, I'm going to say close to definitive terms that, uh, that a long-term deal is not going to happen. 
the quote was option B and option B is referring to a long-term deal with Nylander isn't in the cards. There is no long-term contract coming here. The Leafs can't find an AAV that both fits in with their long-term cap projection and is large enough to entice Nylander to sign for six, seven, or eight years at this time. Now, I don't know what his sourcing is, and, you know, I don't expect him to publish it, but Chris Johnson is a real reporter. Yep, he's reliable. Uh, you, you know, he's a reliable guy who does a competent job, and if he's saying that in those terms, somebody who ought to know probably told him it, and he believes them. So that, he also did say he doesn't think that an offer sheet is really going to happen, and he doesn't think that Nylander is going to sit the year out. But he said basically it's down to a bridge deal or a trade. And there's still a part on a bridge deal, and he kind of said, look, if there's no movement on a bridge deal, at what point do the Leafs have to start thinking trade? And that's really, really painful to contemplate. Uh, I have to it admit is. that, like, it really bothers me to have a trade. I can certainly live with a bridge deal. It's not my favorite solution, but there are some people online who really, really don't like it. Um, but I would prefer it to the alternative. I, I feel like we probably lose any lander trade and we lose it painfully. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, from the first thing I, I would say about a Nylander trade is that it would suck because Nylander is maybe my favorite Leaf to watch. He is so fun. He is an mm -hmm. amazing, amazing player to watch. I love how efficient he is with the puck. I love his uh, puck skills, his passing, his shot when he manages to not get it blocked is a thing of beauty. I love everything about watching him play. He's an amazing player. It's not impossible for the Leafs to win a Nylander trade, but it, I think it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. And I, I think... Um, you know, we'd be remiss not to mention the fact that Kyle Dubas has said, you know, we are not looking to trade Nylander. Reportedly, a huge part of why he went to Switzerland last week to meet with Nylander is to assure him of, hey, you are in our plans. We just need to get you in another number that works for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to trade you. Dubas has said, and all reporting has stated that, like, Dubas is basically saying, don't bother asking about Nylander. We're not trading him. So yeah. I think it, it'll take a huge, huge swing to make, us get into a situation where Nylander is going to be traded where he's like flat out just not coming down on anywhere close to reasonable on a, even a bridge deal mm -hmm. uh, but yeah I mean it, it would be really really disappointing if that did come to pass Nylander is a brilliant player right and I think people are yeah. losing sight of that uh, Ian Tullock had a great piece in the Athletic that went into detail about this and it, it basically brought up the point that if you look if you scratch a little bit deeper beyond the surface and like don't just look at raw points like a fucking Neanderthal, <laughs> then Neander becomes... We have penicillin, we have yeah. the automobile, we have the internet, we have stats that are better than points. God damn it. Technology so, has improved. It is so goddamn annoying. People are like, oh, Neander got 61 points. That's not good enough. <laughs> he got 16 minutes a night, you fucking dumbass. <laughs> I want to tell you that I love your Neanderthal accent so much. <laughs> that voice was priceless. But it's true. At the same time, it's sort of like people are doing one-to-one -one comparisons with Nick Ehlers and with whoever. And it's like, look, you can say William Neander's ask is too high right now. You and can it say, is. I want him to move. You can say that I am frustrated. I think we're all frustrated. We are. But one, look a little deeper in terms of the talent level that's going on there too. Two, 
I gotta say, I don't, I don't like it all the weird morality play tone that comes into these negotiations. It's garbage. It's so yeah. stupid. And I get like, why it happens, but it doesn't make it any less unsavory. Yeah. Like, the reality is you can say, look, I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I want the Leafs to ice the best roster. I would really appreciate it if William Nylander would sign for a discount because that would be good for my team and I want my team to win. That's consistent, at least. But the idea that William Nylander is somehow morally in the wrong for asking for more money and Kyle Dubas is morally in the right for asking him to take less is weird. They're just on two different sides of the negotiating table and they're acting about how you would expect them to act. Yeah, I don't think there's a good guy or bad guy in this situation. It's it's two parties that are looking out for their own best interest and that's what a negotiation is about, right? And yeah. it really sucks that there doesn't appear to be a solution that both of them find agreeable, but mm. neither of them are doing anything wrong no and uh, you know this is kind of the overall thing with sports is that we all recognize it's a business but on an emotional level a lot of people don't really accept that or the implications of that and they get mad uh when the players don't you know basically come to heel and you know i hate to say it but then say Nylander signs and then the next day david Poyle calls up and says hey uh, I'll give you PK Saban for them. And then you do the trade and then everyone's going to say, well, you know, it's a business. It's like, well, yeah, it's a business. But then you can't really get all high and mighty about William Nylander behaving as if it's a business. Uh, right. So I, I've seen some takes that... Um, so reportedly one of the facts that is holding up this negotiation is that Nylander can't get a no-trade clause. And as mm -hmm. such, he it doesn't want to take a discount because he doesn't want that exact situation to happen where he takes a discount to play in Toronto and then gets traded. Yeah. And people made the points like, oh, well, you're if you're on $6.5 in Toronto, we're not going to want to trade you because you'll be so valuable, right? And whether whereas if you're on $8 million, you know, that's not an amazing contract. The Leafs are more likely to trade you. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that is, okay, even if Nylander's on $8 million and the Leafs don't like that contract, they decide to trade him, at least he's still making $8 million. Yeah. He, he's I mean, not <laughs> taken a discount. He has been compensated for the risk that he is taking and not being the, where he wants to be. If exactly. He's, like, by far the worst situation for Nienander is taking $6.5 and then getting traded. Even if that's less likely, that's what he may see as, you know, the worst outcome. He wants to minimize why that happened. Or, the, sorry, the amount of times that that happens or the likelihood of that happening. So, like, I, that particular thing just annoyed me. Regarding that Tulloch piece, I'll, I'll summarize it very briefly here, but a lot of it comes down to the fact that Nylander did not play that many, that uh, a huge amount of minutes relative to other stars. If you prorate his minutes to what most stars get, he would have scored 70 points last year. Mm -hmm. If you put him on a first unit power play, he would have gotten probably more than that. And it's understandable that he wasn't on the first unit power play last year because the first unit power play was amazing. And the Leafs probably have one of the few players who might be unambiguously better than him on the power play in a similar role in Mitch Marner. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't diminish how good Nylander is. Right? And then, like, moving beyond points, Nylander has had a notable impact on Austin Matthews. We've talked a lot about how Austin Matthews' numbers away from Nylander are actually not that great. They're, they're worse than Nylander's without him. Yeah, which is kind of counterintuitive considering i think we would all agree that matthews is the better player yes 100 percent. but you know we've just been talking about how the austin matthews line 
once you adjust for the fact that his shooting percentage is now coming back to earth a little bit, hasn't been as good as we want it to be. And that line has definitely been better with William Nylander in the past, and you might reasonably hope that if we get William Nylander back, it makes a meaningful difference. Now, we can debate how much, but like clearly William Nylander is a very good contributor. Yeah, so I'm just going to bring up the numbers here. Over the last, over basically their entire career since Matthews joined the league, Matthews with Nylander is a 53.5% uh, Corsi player. And mm. higher than that in expected goals and goals. I'm using natural stature here, so I don't have expected goals handy. But if we use like scoring chance percentage as a, as a proxy, they're at 55% there. That's really good. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, Matthews without Nylander, 47%, 48% Corsi, and 49% scoring chances for. Nylander without yeah. Matthews, 49% Corsi, and 50% scoring chances for. Yeah, that, now I mean, the and, step and, down and the from usage, Nylander to Connor Brown is like steep. It, but. It's big, but Nylander away from Matthews was used more defensively than Matthews away from Nylander. And another wrinkle to Matthews' poor performance this year is that he's been used in really, really offensive scenarios. They've been putting him in offensive zone start after offensive zone start. Mm -hmm. So... This idea that Nylander is a total passenger to Matthews is not valid. He is undoubtedly helped by Matthews. Matthews is also undoubtedly helped by him. Right? I mean, we can say, yes, the drop-off from Nylander to Connor Brown is big. Connor Brown is not some talentless player. He's probably... He's he's a decent, probably third-liner. Right? His, yeah. his stats over the last few years have been that of an average NHL winger. Mm. He is not awful there. And the results weren't good, even this year. Matthews is with Marlow and Kapanen. Not great linemates, not elite first-line linemates, but they're not chopped liver either. They're not awful. Marlow mm -hmm. was someone who everyone was pretty happy with as a middle six player last year. Yeah, uh, although, and this is an aside, I don't want to derail too much from the Nylander conversation. Right. But when the Patrick Marlow deal was signed, I think that there was a level of excitement, and I think that this was even true of Mike Babcock and Lou Lamorello, mm -hmm. where it was like, this is the beginning of the Leafs being serious again, being a real free agent destination, being credible. And people looked at Patrick Marlowe, who is a not quite Hall of Famer for his career, but who was at one point really, really excellent. Mm -hmm. And I think people got kind of carried away and they got mad when people pointed out that, hey, for the third year of that deal, he's going to have a no movement clause. He's going to have a cap hit of $6.25 and he's going to be 40 And that might be kind of painful. And I'm going to be real. Some people were real dicks about it. And now we're in the second year of the deal, and Marlowe looks like he's starting to be not quite what he was. And we're facing down a cap crunch for next season, and it's basically entirely the Marlowe contract. Yep. Like, I, I hate to say it, but, like, that deal... I won't go all the way to mistake, and I didn't call it a mistake at the time. I won't. I was it was like, a mistake. It was 100% yeah. a mistake. You were uh, bolder than I was about it, and you're going to turn out to be right. I said, like, I like this, but this is a bit risky. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that that potentially is going to dim with time in terms of luster. Yeah, we, we did, like, a roundtable post last year about all the Leafs free agent acquisitions, and I gave that a D plus. Yeah, and I gave it like a B or something like that, which is, I come from the softy liberal arts, everybody gets a B. So, <laughs> <laughs> you have standards in math, people actually have to be right about stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, regarding Morado, yeah, that that deal is not looking amazing now. And if it's a deal that contributes to potentially losing someone like William Nylander, it looks even worse. Um, I, I still don't think we're gonna trade him. Uh, I think no. Dubas has been so consistent on that, and I think. Every indication has been that Dubas and the Leafs front office knows exactly how good Nylander is. I trust Dubas mm-hmm. to um, be able to divide points by time on ice. <laughs> I trust him to be able to look up things like RAPM and isolated threat where Nylander grades out as well above average. Yeah. Uh, so I don't see that being a problem, but retaining him after a bridge deal could be a little bit of a challenge. One thing that yeah. works in the least favor, and this is one reason why I don't think a bridge deal is as problematic as some people do. Mm-hmm. I think Nylander is going to have a hard time putting up a crazy point totals, which may seem at odds with the fact that I've been talking about how good he is and how much he, how he's very clearly like one of, uh, very clearly a, a first liner at the very least, and potentially could be one of the elite players in the game. And the reason I think that is because he's not going to be on power play one for the foreseeable, or at least for this season, for pro- almost certainly not, and. Probably not even for next season either, uh, just because all the main components are still going to be here. Mm-hmm. He is going to, he's going to be with Austin Matthews at even strength. But even um, even then, the Leafs don't ride any individual star that much in an average game. So his minutes are still not going to be similar to those guys at the top of the league. Like you look at how much McDavid plays. McDavid plays like twenty three minutes a night. Yeah, right. but in his defense, like the Edmonton Oilers are McDavid, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Leon Dreisaitl, and like 17 Muppets. Right. So. Ex- no, and I think like this is a good thing for the Leafs. The Leafs have built up enough forward depth that they don't have to overplay anyone, right? They can mm-hmm. they can give people lighter loads, and that's one of the big advantages of having three awesome centers, mm-hmm. right? You can um, be cr- you can rest them, right? You don't have to ride them the way Florida rides Alexander Barkov, the way. Edmonton rides McDavid the way New Jersey rides Taylor Hall, right? And actually, that was a big part of Taylor Hall's huge season last year. He played a crap ton of minutes, as he should have. He's by far New Jersey's best player, and he was amazing. Um, but yeah, I, for that reason, I don't think Nylander is going to put up ridiculous, ridiculous point total. So it's possible that on a bridge deal, um, or after a bridge deal, his he's not going to be as expensive as we may think. Yeah. And hopefully that's the that. case. I, I really don't want to lose Nylander in general, even when it comes to like free agency or trading him after that uh, or trading him before he gets to UFA to, because we think we won't be able to re-sign him. Like it, it's, it's hard to win a trade where you're giving up the best player and Nylander is almost certainly going to be the best player in any deal where he gets traded because he's one of the 50 best players in the league. Not actually 50 best players. He's one of like the 75 best players in the league or something like that. Yeah. Like the defenseman that you can get for William Nylander... And the defenseman that you should want to trade William Nylander for, I still think are two entirely separate lists. You know, the best you might do is some guy who's on the come up and that you have correctly identified as a potential future stud. You know, I'm thinking like Mikhail Sergachev was. But really, I think that a deal with William Nylander is a, a painful one to contemplate. And I still think it should not be that hard to get to yes on a bridge deal. Like, I've heard some reports that the separation on a bridge deal for three years for the Leafs was something like 6 million versus 4.8. I think if you can get Nylander a bridge deal in the mid-fives or something like that, that's fine. 
I think even if we were to bend a little bit and we end up giving him closer to six, I would rather overpay him by half a million dollars than lose him in a trade. Like, yeah, I don't neither love option the, is great, but one is very much preferable to me than the other. Yeah, and I, you know, again, uh, I was talking to totally offside on Twitter, who's uh-huh. a, a loose Twitter presence, and he was vehement that. This is setting an awful precedent. Well, I'm thinking, is this negotiation something to envy? If you're Matthews or Marner, you know, the guy is sitting in Europe currently not making a salary, and he's going to come out of this with a bridge deal for less money and less security. I don't think that this is the solution that anyone wants. I'm not saying Kyle Dubas should fold and, you know, give in immediately to his ask. Mm -hmm. But I, I think if this resolves itself in a bridge deal, I am still okay with that. And I think Kyle Dubas at this point is just going to play the waiting game. I think at this point he's saying, look, in the end, I hold the cards. I have a good enough team that I can get through the first couple months of the season fine. And he probably wants to make a really good salary uh, in the NHL rather than elsewhere. So that unfortunately raises the prospect of we're going to be still having this conversation for another three, four weeks, Mm -hmm. which believe me, even as someone who talks about the Leafs obsessively, that's not something I'm looking forward to, but I really want us to get to a favorable resolution here. And it looks like it's going to have to be a bridge, and so be it. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I don't want to happen is where we get so caught up in winning the negotiation that we forget that we are a much better team when we have William Nylander on it. I mean, mm-hmm. we spent 40 minutes discussing on how the Leafs are. They look like a, a mediocre team at, at even strength that it is going to have great shooting great goaltending and a very good power play and a great power play let's say um yeah Nylander makes that makes all of those kind of more point more more potent right we're not necessarily a contender without him we're much closer to a reasonable contender with him because he will have a very um strong effect on the team because of kind of the knock-on effect of adding an elite player right if you put him on the mm-hmm. first line now suddenly you can play, okay, let's say you play Marlowe in a less uh, prominent role, right? Well, he's going to look better there, right? Yeah. Uh, now you have maybe a winger for Kadri. They might be able to get going. That might push Lindholm down to replace Gauthier at fourth line center. You know, we we still think Lindholm is better than him personally. Or at least I do. I'm pretty sure you mm-hmm. do as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? So that, that will matter. Um, and the Leafs get a little bit closer to being one of the better teams in the league with Nylander. Uh, and I feel not compromising at all is not really preferable to compromising and having Nylander. Mm-hmm. Just because like that that's his leverage. If he has any, his leverage is that we are a better team with him. We are a plausible contender with him. Not that he will yeah. fix all the flaws that we were kind of bitching about in the first half of this pod, but he gets us a little bit closer to where we want to go. Yeah, that that's kind of the bottom line there. And like... You know, if we were a 75-point team or something, we would paradoxically have more leverage because we wouldn't really care that much about William Nylander coming back this season. Like, he would have a lot less to force in terms of, like, there's a real price to pay for us if William Nylander is out for this year because it makes the team worse and it probably takes us out of the top table. Uh, Yeah. This team, when Matthews is shooting at an ordinary rate without William Nylander doesn't look like the very best teams in the NHL. And 
that's painful for us. That's a, a tough thing to accept. So, uh, you know, in the end, I, I do want him back. And I, I don't want to wilt. I'm okay with Kyle Dubas holding out. But, like, I, it's really important to me that this ends in not some kind of disaster panic, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that pretty much covers what we wanted to discuss this week, right? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, we've got two games against the Winnipeg Jets. So that'll always be an interesting test. Uh, Patrick Laine is growing on me because he keeps making fun of the Vancouver Canucks, which is always the shortest road to my heart. And uh, yeah, we're going to see. All we can do is kind of wait and see and hope Mm -hmm. that we get a favorable resolution from Nylander. That's the biggest thing that this team has to look forward to in terms of improvement. And hopefully not awful defense from Austin Matthews' line. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Um, okay, so thanks for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and at AT Fuleman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.